Our text this morning is Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 43. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 23. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That by the power of your spirit, you would illumine our hearts and our minds. That we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. That we would understand what he has done on our behalf. And that we would serve him gladly. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We have come this morning to the place in Luke's gospel where the cross is before us. 
Not as something in the future of Jesus' life and ministry, but it is literally right before us as Jesus is about to be crucified. The cross is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. The cross is at the heart of faith in Jesus Christ. And for many in the world, the cross is the shame of the Christian faith. But to those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ, they know that the cross is the glory of Jesus. It is the work that He has done that is without parallel. It is the work that we are most in need of. And it is the work that changes who we are. So this morning, I would like us to see three things as Jesus is crucified. First, we see something, actually two surprises on the way to the cross. The second thing we see is Jesus on the cross. And how Jesus relates to those who are around him. And then third, we see the difference at the cross. The difference that the cross makes as we look and see two thieves with two very different reactions to the cross of Christ. Let's begin then by looking at the way to the cross. This is the final end of the journey we have been taking with Luke since the beginning. Luke's entire gospel leads to this. There have been pictures, as we have studied throughout his gospel, you may recall in Luke chapter 2 that Simeon prophesied of the sword that would pierce Mary's heart, the cross that would come to Jesus. And then we saw that Jesus explained to us in chapter 9 that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by others. When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9, we saw he spoke with Moses and with Elijah, but he spoke with them about his departure that was to come. And in that same chapter, Luke tells us that he set his face toward Jerusalem, going to the work that was before him. Jesus actually told us in chapter 18 that he would be tortured and that he would die. And he gave us a parable in chapter 20 about the murder of the Son. Everything that we have seen Jesus teach, every miracle that we have seen him perform, all that Jesus has done and said lead up to this point. I dare say that none of them would have any true meaning without this work upon the cross. And so we see Jesus in verse 26 being led away to the cross. So, who is the ones who are leading him away? Luke is vague here. He just says, they to us. I think what we need to understand here is the picture of Jesus going to the cross, and it is, in some senses, everyone who is leading him to his death. There are the Roman soldiers and the agents of the government. There are the religious leaders and the Pharisees. There are the secular Jewish leaders and the Sadducees. And there are the usurpers of the Herodians. All of them are now banded together against Jesus. Before this point, all they did was fight with each other and find ways to defeat each other. But now they are united against Jesus. You see, that's what Jesus does. He unites people. We like to think about it in the way of the church 
How Jesus brings us together as Christians and unites us. People of different races, people of different nationalities, people of different ethnic backgrounds. And that is a great encouragement. I've often said to many of my fellow PCA pastors how encouraging it is to see that played out in our congregation with so many countries represented in our congregation. People from all over the globe. But you see, Jesus doesn't just unite those within the church. He unites those outside the church also. You see, they are always willing to band together against Jesus. No matter what their beliefs are, they know they can't put up with Jesus because Jesus' demands are absolute. He is true. He is the life. He is the way. And so all of them come together here and lead Jesus off to his death. Now you have to picture in your mind's eye all that Jesus has been through as he is going off now to the cross. He has been up all night, you remember, praying and then when there was a trial. So he has gotten no sleep. He has been betrayed by those who were closest to him. They have scattered. He has seen seen Peter deny him. He has been beaten and mocked. He has been struck. He's had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He is at pain and at odds. And you may recall that Pilate spoke of punishing Jesus as we were looking in the last few weeks at the trial. Now, the Romans had a habit of whipping people. And by whipping people, I'm not meaning what some of you young people have maybe heard adults say. This is not referred to two or three spanks on the bottom. This means an actual whipping. And the Romans were a very, very organized people. And so they didn't just have whipping in general. They actually had three grades of whipping. They would use three different implements, and there would be three different ways in which you could be whipped, depending on how severely you were to be punished. Jesus was whipped in the way that the Romans called veriboratio, which was the most extreme form of whipping. We would call it scourging, as you see in some of your translations of the Bible. Now, what you have to get out of your mind is this kind of fancy Indiana Jones whip that flicks at someone and leaves a mark. When you were scourged in Roman days, there were multiple strands of a whip. Three, sometimes five, sometimes seven. And along that whip were embedded lead balls to give it weight so that there would be greater violence done. And at the end of the whip, pieces of jagged bone were sewn in. So that you weren't just beaten with the whip, you weren't just cut with the whip, you were gouged. Now I will spare you all of the gory details, but we have accounts of this kind of scourging from other sources, not about the crucifixion, that would put it perhaps... Mildly this way, when someone was scourged, you saw more of their insides than you wanted to. So Peter, excuse me, so Jesus has been beaten, he's been betrayed, and he's been scourged. He is even now fulfilling the word of God. For you see, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 52 that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Even in the beating that Jesus takes before his death, he is testifying to the truth of God's word. 
And so Jesus, as he is stumbling throughout the road, carrying this large crossbeam, is having a great deal of difficulty. Now, he's probably carrying about a hundred pound chunk of wood. That cross piece that you would see across the cross. Not the piece in the ground, but the cross beam. And it would be laid across his bare shoulders. The the wood would be digging into his flesh. It would be heavy. He is tired. He has bled. And when you went to the place of crucifixion, the Romans did not take you along the fastest route. They took you throughout as much of the city as they could so that people would see your punishment, so that people would be afraid and they would say, I never want to mess with the Romans ever. And so you could just imagine what Jesus is going through. It's gotten to such the point that the soldiers fear that he will not actually make it to the place of his death. You see, when they get help here, they're not concerned about Jesus. These are the same soldiers that beat him shortly ago. They're just afraid he won't make it to the place of crucifixion. And no Roman would ever be so shamed as to carry a piece of a cross. You see, crucifixion and the kind of beating that Jesus took was illegal to administer to a Roman citizen. It was shame beyond shame. And so they look around and they see a man just standing off in the way and they grab him and they say, here, take this and carry it. Imagine what that must be like for this man. He's in, Luke tells us, from the country. He's in for the Passover. He's here to celebrate the most holy and religious time of year. And now here he is, dragged into a criminal proceeding. Imagine if you were out watching a Christmas parade with lights in Katy, Texas. And the sheriffs came through with criminals, and they grabbed you and they said, here, take their burden from them. You could just imagine the shock. Why me? What did I do to deserve this? Why is God against me? Of all the people, how unlucky could I be? But who is this person? There's a bit of a surprise to him. Luke tells us that his name is Simon. And what's very interesting is this random man who is taken to carry the cross... We are given his name not just by Luke, not just by Matthew, but by Mark as well. There are plenty of people in this story who aren't named. We don't know the soldiers' names. We don't know the centurion who will later look up and say that Jesus was righteous, his name. We don't know the names of the women. Why do we know this man's name? Why do the gospel writers take such pains to tell us who he is? It's a detail that's important because Mark gives us a second detail. Mark tells us that he is Simon from Cyrene, who is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now that should perk your ears because Rufus is an unusual name. It's not Simon or John or Peter or Joshua. There aren't too many Rufuses running around in the Bible, are there? No, actually, Rufus is only mentioned twice. He's mentioned once in Mark's gospel. Mark must have known him. How would Mark have known him? Well, Mark authored his gospel, and most believe that he wrote the gospel first and primarily for the church at Rome. So maybe he knew Rufus in Rome. We may understand this better if we look at the other place 
that Rufus is mentioned. It's in the letter of Paul to the Romans. Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. So it seems that Rufus is someone who's important in the church at Rome. That his mother is such a devout Christian that Paul considers her a mother figure. That tells us a little bit more about Simon, doesn't it? He's not just some random guy that has bad luck and has to lug a heavy weight. No, this is a man who in God's sovereign grace, God grabs and does the thing that he wants least to happen to him. No one would stand up and volunteer to take the criminal's cross that morning. But God brings him in touch with Jesus. And we have every reason to believe from the account of Mark and the account of Romans and the the account in Acts of the church that grew up in Cyrene, that Simon came to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and his wife became a Christian, a devout Christian, and his sons became pillars in the church in Rome, all because God, in His sovereign mercy and grace, grabbed a hold of him this morning. This should be an encouragement to you. There are things that happen to you all day long, all week long, that you wish wouldn't happen. That you wonder why they happen to you. Why can't God get His act together? God is sovereign, and He's merciful, and He's wise. What a surprise and a blessing for Simon. There's another surprise that we see as Jesus goes to the cross, and this is a surprise for Jerusalem. For you see, coming after Jesus are A group of mourners, probably professional mourners. Women whose job it was to try and provide some some mercy and peace for those who were about to die. These are not women who followed Jesus. It's not Mary and Martha. They're not those who were his disciples. They are just women who represent the city. Who would often follow the condemned with wine. Often drugged wine so that they would ease their pain. And so they begin to mourn behind Jesus. And we might expect Jesus to be gracious and to turn around and to thank them for their show of emotion. But he addresses them instead with some surprising words. Words that don't strike us as being ordinary. He looks at them and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. You see, he addresses them as representatives of the nation itself. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets would speak to the daughters of Jerusalem or the women of Jerusalem, speaking about judgment that would come upon the nation. You see, it's totally out of place here for us. But it's totally in character for Jesus. You see, because Jesus is more concerned about sinners than he is about himself. You see, we don't understand that because that's not how we operate. You see, I think sometimes we even fall prey to the temptation of wanting Jesus to thank us for what we are doing for Him. You know, we all got up early this morning and came to church, didn't we? There's a whole host of people that didn't. We read our Bibles. We prayed. We're following you. We're serving you, Jesus. You could show a little gratitude. Be thankful for this. But you see, in reality... It is we who need Jesus. 
It is we who need His Word. It is we who need prayer. It is we who need to come together and worship. You see, Jesus is warning these women and all of Jerusalem that judgment is coming. And that the judgment that is coming is so fierce that it will turn the world upside down. He gives a picture of that. The worst thing that could happen to you if you were a woman in this day and age would be to be childless. That would be a curse. And yet Jesus says, those who are barren are blessed. That's how bad the judgment is that is coming. Your whole world is going to be turned upside down. You will try and escape. You'll want mountains to fall down on top of you, but you will not be able to. You see, what Jesus is telling us is that the person to be pitied here is not the Savior, but the sinner who rejects the Savior. Too often when we come to this story, when we come to this text, what fills our minds and our hearts is a pity for Jesus. How much he must be hurting. How horrible this must be for him. And we lose sight of how horrible this is for our neighbor who doesn't know Christ. And who will be lost forever. How our co-worker who does not know Jesus will be lost to all eternity and hellfire. How maybe even for ourselves, how if we have not closed with Christ, if we have not given up of ourselves and placed our trust in Jesus, the people to be pitied is us, not Jesus. There's a warning here from Jesus. A warning of grace. You see, it's like Jonah when he came to Nineveh, saying, repent or you will be consumed. There is a call to Jerusalem to repent before it is too late. And he says, if this is happening now when it's green, what will happen when it's dry? Any of you that have ever spent any time with a Boy Scout know exactly the difference between trying to start a fire with green wood plucked off a tree and dry wood. What Jesus is saying here is, if this is what is happening now, can you imagine what will come when the fullness is here? Because far too often we reject the idea of judgment. We want to push it off. We want to think it is something that we don't need to worry about now. Even those of us that have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we think to ourselves, okay, now we're safe and we can put off the idea of judgment when everyone around us literally is dying. At the cross, Jesus calls us to proclaim His grace to a world that is in need. The second thing we see is Jesus on the cross. And as we look at the cross, the first thing I want us to do is to look at our own hearts and to beware our heart. A long journey has just been completed. And after this long journey, Jesus comes to the place called the skull. It is outside the city because it would be impure, it would be unclean to kill a criminal in this fashion inside the city. And so they take him outside the city, even as the author of Hebrews says, Therefore let us go outside the camp to bear the reproach that he endured. Jesus is going to be numbered with the transgressors exactly as it had been predicted. Luke tells us this in verse 32. There are two others who were criminals who were led away to be put to death with him. And around the cross, there is a group of people. First, there are soldiers. And what are they occupied with? 
Luke tells us that they go out there and cast lots to divide his garments. They play a dice game or some kind of game of chance to see who gets Jesus' clothing. You see, they're concerned about themselves and their self-interest. They're not worried about what Jesus is suffering, whether he is innocent or what will happen. They're consumed with themselves. They could have been speaking about 21st century America, couldn't they? You know, we've just seen horrible things happen in this last week. Bombs exploding. People being killed by rifle fire. Terrorist attacks everywhere. And I guarantee you that there were people who woke up this morning more concerned about their fantasy football lineup than about those attacks or about Jesus. It's self-interest. We come into ourselves. Our world becomes so small. And this is what the soldiers were doing. You know, imagine if today there were a swap meet being held in Paris to auction off the clothing of the dead. That's the callousness that is coming before Jesus. But again, prophecy is fulfilled. For the psalmist writes, They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. A thousand years before this happens, God's word tells us it will happen. And then there is another group of people. They're just called the people. And they're standing around and they're sort of detached. They don't know what to make of Jesus. You see, they're very confused. Last week, they were hailing him as a king. The other day, they were saying, crucify him. And now they're not so sure what to make of all of this spectacle. You see, they're just focused also on themselves. This is the way of the world. They wanted Jesus to do for them what they thought was best. That's not how we can come to Jesus. There are some who will lie to you in Jesus' name. And tell you that Jesus is there to meet your needs. That if you have hunger or poverty or sickness, that's why you need to go to Jesus. That's a lie. You have one need. That is the need to be right with a holy God. Jesus did not come to earth and live a perfect life and die an atoning death so that you could be freed from illness. He's greater than that. He didn't come to provide you with a cushy lifestyle, a big home, and a fancy car. Jesus went to the cross so that you might know salvation and be right with God and be freed from the burden of your sin and know the forgiveness of sins. But you see, the people around there, they don't understand this. And we see it even more sharply in the rulers who are there. They begin not just standing around, but they're mocking him. Look at verse 35. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's Christ. Now, you see, they want to be in control. They want Jesus to play by their rules, to do what they want. And look at the anger in their hearts. They admit that Jesus saves people. You know, I find it interesting with all of the skepticism that we see in the world today about the scriptures that nowhere in the Bible do any of Jesus' opponents deny the miracles he did, deny the healings he performed. You see, they're saying we know he saved people, but we don't really care because he doesn't fit what we want. 
We don't need salvation from sin. We need someone to bow to us. You see, they still want Jesus to obey them. They don't understand their own hearts and their own need. And this is something that comes and hits us today right now. Do you take time and understand your own need of salvation? You see, there are many things that happen to us that get our attention. We have difficulties in relationships. We don't have enough money. Things go badly for us in circumstances. And that occupies our attention. But are we really focused upon the deep-seated need we have to be right before a holy God? The judgment is coming, even as Jesus has said. And the only way to avoid that judgment, the only way to know peace, is to find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. You see, the soldiers begin to team up with the rulers And they begin in their own way to say, well, if you're a king, why don't you come down and act like a king? And the irony here is, is that both for the rulers and for the soldiers, it has been declared to them. Because there is a sign above the cross. And you know what the sign says? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pontius Pilate had had that sign written. He did it as a way to poke back at the Jews for putting him into a corner in the trial. And the Jews, in a typical lawyerly fashion, went to Pilate and said, no, 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 you can't do that. You need to edit it. Say, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate gives perhaps one of the most humorous answers in all of Scripture. He says, what I have written, I've written. You see, God is using even Pilate and the forces of the enemy to declare who Jesus is. Stop looking for more evidence of Jesus. Stop trying to provide evidence for others of Jesus. God has declared who He is. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. God has made known who He is and what His judgment is in the world. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He has shown His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature in the creation of the world. Each and every one of us is without excuse. And the only hope we have is to see Jesus. This is what we see at the cross. We see the greatness of Jesus' heart. Now, remember that this is the most extreme ordeal that you could possibly think of that Jesus is going through. The physical pain is beyond imagining. Any of you who have ever broken a bone or had a deep cut know how painful that is, know how hard it is to even think afterwards. And Jesus has been beaten, he has been whipped, and now he has had large spikes driven through his hands and driven through his feet. And he is propped up on a cross, which is the most horrible way in the Roman Empire to die. It's because it takes hours to die on a cross. You die of suffocation, not of blood loss, not of pain. Just imagine being on a cross and being tired and being hung and slumping down. And when you slump down, your lungs can't fill with air, so you can't breathe. And so you have to push up against the cross to try and catch a couple of breaths, at which point you become exhausted and you slump down. 
And you see this happening over and over again for hour upon hour upon hour. This is what Jesus is experiencing. On top of it, there's the anguish of soul of bearing the sin of all of his people. And then there is the complete injustice of all that he is going through. If you've ever experienced injustice, you know that it makes anything you have worse just knowing it's not right. And yet Jesus has the courage to pray. Not for himself. Not even for his friends. He prays for his enemies. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now again, who are the they? Luke is being vague for us. I think on one hand we could say, it certainly is the Roman soldiers. They're the ones doing the actual crucifying. Others could say, well, it's the Jews and the authorities there. They don't understand fully what they are doing, or they would never do it. But it's a, a, a vague and a wide pronoun, isn't it? Forgive them. It's soldiers. It's Jews. But who else put Jesus on the cross? You did. I did. Our sins made the cross necessary. Our sins made the payment necessary. You see, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, even at this moment, he is opening up the gospel of grace. And we know at least one person heard him. We'll see that in a minute. Now, this is not a blanket forgiveness. This does not change who they are or their condition. It's very specific. It's about this actual crucifixion. Because, you see, if they didn't know they could have forgiveness for this, how could they ever go to Jesus? And we see this prayer bear fruit in the book of Acts, as even those who had shouted crucify, even those who had been a part of this plot, came to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that not a small number of the priests came to faith in Christ. It shows us the heart of Jesus. If Jesus can forgive them, who is beyond his reach? What's the worst thing you've done? Have you lied? Have you cheated? Have you beat someone up? Have you murdered someone? You haven't murdered the Son of God on a cross. If Jesus can forgive them, how could you be outside of his forgiveness? How could you be too sinful to receive grace? You see, we see the heart of Jesus Christ, and this should help us to understand our own sin and our need for Jesus. The third thing we see is the difference that the cross makes. Jesus is crucified between two thieves. Now, before we look at each of them in turn, you have to understand that when they are on the cross initially, they are two wicked thieves. There is not the good thief and the bad thief. Mark makes it very clear to us that both of them are insulting Jesus at the beginning on the cross. They are both being punished for wicked deeds. Matthew tells us that they are robbers. They are men of violence. They're the kind of people who would do a home invasion in your neighborhood and kill people for gain. So it's not as if there's a good guy and a bad guy and Jesus recognizes it. They're all bad guys. 
But we first see the picture of the one who rails against Jesus. Now, Jesus is upon the cross. This is not just some play. This is Jesus at work changing the entirety of the universe. At this moment in time, all of the world will be divided into two camps. Those who believe in Christ and those who reject Him. And up until this point, everyone is united against Jesus. Everyone who's standing by is accusing Him. The two thieves are both railing against Him. But as has been said famously before, Jesus was hanged between two thieves. One alone was saved on the cross that none might despair. And only one that none might presume. You see, we're shown the difference here of what it means to believe in Christ. The first looks at Jesus and says, If you're the Son of God, save us and yourself. He begins demanding of Jesus. Now think about this. Jesus hadn't put him on the cross. Why would this man want to insult Jesus? He's not exactly in a very good spot. But you see, this is human nature. We think somehow we can make ourselves better if other people are worse. We drag other people down so that we look better. We think all we need to do is be a little bit better than the worst and we're okay. You see, this man wants Jesus to save him, but even where he is, it has to be on his terms. The man is dying, condemned for a crime on a cross, and he wants Jesus to obey him. This is what the sinful heart is like. We also want to understand that what he really wants is not to be saved permanently. What he really wants to say, but doesn't just say it, is, Jesus, please help me in this emergency. Help get me out of this pickle. And you see, oftentimes, if we're not careful, that's how we approach the Lord Jesus Christ. We approach Him as someone who can help us in time of need, when circumstances are dire, when we know we can't do things ourselves. And then when life gets back to normal, then we can go back to ordinary life. Some of you may recall that right after the attacks on 9-11, there was some hope that there would be a revival in the land as people started talking more about Jesus and God and about, um, about mercy and about the meaning of life. And at the time, I was skeptical and was discouraged to be proved right. Because, you see, as soon as we moved away from 9-11, as soon as people realized their house wasn't going to blow up next week, that there weren't going to be more immediate attacks, that they were out of immediate danger, what did they do? They went back to their normal life. They didn't need Jesus anymore. You see, they didn't have Jesus to meet their true need their need of salvation and forgiveness. They just wanted emergency help. This is what the thief on the cross wants. But there's another thief. There's a thief who repented. He sees. He looks out and he sees the cruelty of others. He sees that Jesus is innocent. He tells us that in verse 41. He's done nothing wrong. And I think also he hears the prayer of Jesus For forgiveness. And he realizes his own guilt. And he knows that he has no place to stand. And he cries out for grace. And he comes to Jesus. And it's interesting here that this wicked thief. 
who is condemned to death and who is hanging on a cross, naked, beaten, and dying, is one of the very, very few occasions in the Bible when someone looks at our Lord and addresses Him by the name Jesus. He doesn't say rabbi. He doesn't say master. He says, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. And what does he cry out? He doesn't say, remember my works. He doesn't say, remember how good I was to my family. He doesn't say, remember that in the last moment I sided with you against the thief and the others. No, he just says, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, all he wants is grace from the one who can give it. He wants grace from the one that he knows is the king of kings. Copernicus put it this way, I think, well. I do not ask for the grace that you gave Paul, nor can I dare to ask for the grace that you gave Peter. But the mercy which you did show to the dying robber, that mercy show to me. Is that the cry of your heart? As one who needs the least of grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, that's what makes the world of difference. It's the difference between an angry unbelief and humble faith. It's the difference between asking for proof and submitting to Jesus. It's the difference between requiring Jesus to act how I want and just knowing that Jesus knows. This is a picture of what it means to be saved. Do you know this by faith? This thief on the cross cried out to Jesus and he was saved. He was saved immediately. Today you will be with me. He was saved eternally. You will be with me in paradise, Jesus says. He was saved personally. Jesus says, I say to you, not to everyone, not to people, but to you, you will be with me this day. And he is saved certainly. Truly, I say to you. The thief on the cross tells us that it is never too late to come to Jesus. But let me remind you of something else. It's never too early to come to Jesus. Find the forgiveness of sins in the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only hope that any of us have. And it's all the hope that we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for reminding us of how great our need is. And we thank you for showing us how great a Savior you have given to us. Lord, we ask that you would allow us to gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ to see in Him all that we need, all our hope. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.